My wife Ingrid was a senior in high school and she was at a national high school conference in Colorado. The speaker spoke on the story of Isaiah seeing the uh, train of the robe of the Lord in the temple and Isaiah's sense of sin and repentance and then the Lord's declaration, who will go for me? And Isaiah said, here am I, send me. It was a clear call to vocational ministry. And the speaker, when he was done speaking in front of about 5,000 people, 5,000 teens, if you are hearing God's call in your life tonight, I want you to stand up in front of your peers and yell out in a loud voice, here I am, send me. And that day, Ingrid stood up in front of all of her peers and said, here I am, send me. She didn't have much of an idea what that was going to be. She was going to college the next year. She was going to be an education major. The traditions that we grew up didn't have a lot of imagination where women fit into ministry, so she thought either I'll be a missionary teacher or I'll marry a pastor. <laughs> she got both. Uh, she probably didn't marry me because I was going to be a pastor, probably because I was such a handsome man, <laughs> and uh, I won't go there. But she was on her path. Uh, as it turned out, we went into the pastorate, she was a teacher, things were working out fine, and then had this incredible situation. Oh, I should tell you, part of our wedding vows was that we wrote our own. Uh, that was back in the day when you wrote your own vows. Uh, we weren't really happy with traditional things, and, but we did choose the words of Ruth to Naomi when Ruth said, where you go, I will go. And that was Ingrid's declaration to me. So she went with me to New Jersey, our first cross-cultural experience. <laughs> and two years later, I went to Africa, and in Kuchala, Mali, I heard God say, I want you to come back to Africa. I knew it would be so difficult that I came back and I prayed that Ingrid would have the similar call, and nine months later, the Lord called her. And we've been on this crazy journey ever since. God is a calling God. He comes to us and he taps us on the shoulder at different seasons of life and says, this is what I want you to do. Now today we start a four-week series on the book of Jonah. We'll do one chapter per week. It's an interesting story about Jonah. It's more about the narrative of the prophet than what the prophet says. Usually when we go to the prophets, we want to hear what word the Lord is going to give them. What we're going to get out of Jonah is not what he says, but what he does and doesn't do. He's more of an allegory as a prophet than he is in the word that he brings. Some have called Jonah a satire because it is radically funny. I hope you find the humor in it that I find as I go throughout uh, the four weeks of preaching on it. But Jonah is somewhat like Gilligan. You remember the story Gilligan's Island? <laughs> Gilligan was spoof and hero all the time. He was bumbling in all the things he does, but in the end, Gilligan's the, he's better than the skipper, he's better than any of them. And Jonah's going to turn out that way for us, but God is going to use his story to teach us a lesson. I believe Jonah is in the middle of the Bible as a mid-course correction for the people of God because they had missed their calling. And God uses the story of one individual to call them back. So here's the overall theme of the book of Jonah. It's this. God is telling a story in history. You have a part in that story, and the question is, will you play off the same script as God or not? That's what the story of Jonah is about. Will we live according to God's way, 
or will we follow our own calling? Today we get to look at this whole notion of calling. So Jonah chapter 1, you may want to take your Bibles out. I'm just going to go through it verse by verse. There's so many things here that are rich and exciting for us. Jonah is called a minor prophet. Those of you who are new to the Scriptures, we have basically four sections in the Hebrew Scriptures. There's the Law or the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books. There's the history, which tells the movements of God's people. There's wisdom literature, the Psalms and the Proverbs, and then there's prophets. These are ones who were given a message, thus says the Lord. There's two types of prophets. There's major prophets and there's minor prophets. Do you know how you tell the difference? The length of the book. I never know why we came up with that designation, but Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they're longer, and then you come to Daniel and they get shorter, so we call them minor prophets. Their message isn't minor. It's quite major, and it speaks to where the people are at. So if you go into your Bible, you'll find Daniel somewhere close to the middle, and you go right to Hosea and Joel and Amos and Obadiah, and you'll finally arrive at Jonah. And this is the beginning of the Jonah story as we know it, verse 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. The word of the Lord. This occurs over a hundred times in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's a sign that God is about to do something new. Amos says it this way, when God's going to do something, He first tells His prophets what He's going to do. It's a break-in. Now, there's so much I'd like to know about Jonah at this point. It would help me interpret his story. He's a prophet, so what's going on in his life? But the word of the Lord, Dabar, the same word that spoke creation into existence is speaking into our lives to call us into the places that God has for us. It's quite amazing. Eugene Peterson in his commentary on Samuel says, the most important question isn't, does God exist? That is such a passe question. The real question is, does God communicate? Because if God is communicating and revealing, that's the only way we're going to get to know Him and to know what His purposes are. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah, son of Amittai. Now, it's interesting, the etymology of his name. Jonah means the dove, which is a symbol of peace. There is nothing about peace in Jonah's life. He's going to mess up a lot of people's life even before we get out of this chapter. And the son of Amitye is one of faithfulness or truthfulness. There is nothing faithful about this prophet. We're going to see in this story that pagans, that's why I think it's so key to how God is placed in Scripture, pagans act like the way you would expect a prophet to act, and a prophet acts in the opposite way of what you're expecting. The word comes to him, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call it against it for the evil that has come up before me. Arise, it literally in the text says, get up and go. And where he sees to go? To Nineveh, the great city. Uh, The word great appears seven times in Jonah, which triggers something in your mind. There'll be three times before we get out of this chapter. Nineveh was the most powerful city of the day. Some estimate as many as 600,000 people. Huge for that time in history. But what they're mostly known of is the capital of Nineveh as being the most ruthless society of that time. They wiped out their enemies. And so the calling for Jonah was to go to the most brutal enemies that Israel had had, and it actually will drag them into captivity. Quite a calling. 
challenging for him. And what's he supposed to do? Announce that there are living in evil. Wow. So how does the prophet respond? Verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Tarshish is in the opposite direction of Nineveh. Not only is it in the opposite direction, the Hebrew people are used to living on land. He would go over land to uh, Nineveh. He's going to go into the sea, which is the place of chaos. That's where Phoenicians lived. You didn't go as a Hebrew. He's doing everything to get himself away from God. In the verse, two times it says he's fleeing the presence of God. Now, this is where I love the biblical text. Watch what's happening. Here's the calling. Arise, get up, and go. And so what does Jonah do? He goes down to Joppa. Now, there's something happening here. If you think about the geography, Jerusalem is up on the holy hill, and you have to descend the plains to go out towards the shore, which is in Joppa. When he gets in Joppa, you're going to see in the text, he goes down to the harbor. When he goes down to the harbor, he's going to go down into a boat. Not only is he going to get into a boat, he's going to go into the belly of the boat. He's going to get cast down into the depths of the sea. He's going to go into a belly of a fish, and he's going to go deeper. See, God's saying, rise up and realize your purpose in life. And what Jonah does in disobedience is he goes down, down, down. I probably should just say amen and let's all go home right now. But there's more to the story. God wants us to see that we may think we're in charge of things, but he's really the one writing the story. So there's another great thing that happens. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give you a thought to us uh, that we may not perish. You see, we can flee God, which is foolishness, because the psalmist says, Where can I go and be apart from God's presence? But God will send things our way to get us back on target. He loves us that much. And I don't want to get into the tempest as much because I want to get into it next week of how God uses opposition in our life. But the whole point here is that Jonah is numb to the reality of everything that's going around him. And so God sends a great storm to bless Jonah. Now, he's down in the boat. He's anesthetizing himself. He doesn't want to know about this storm that's going on. What we would do is we would go shopping, we would have a second glass of whiskey, we would find different ways to anesthetize ourselves. You put the fill in the blank of what you want, but that's what Jonah's doing. And here's the catch of this story. The pagan captain goes down into the ship and says, what are you doing? Shouldn't you be crying out to your God in this time? We're going to see that Jonah the prophet and the pagans are almost living in reverse of what you would expect. Jonah comes up to the top of the boat. They ask him, where are you from? I'm not going to go into the details. He finally responds, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. 
takes nine verses before the prophet speaks. Usually the prophet says, right in verse 1, thus says the Lord, and boom, it comes. And a fear comes on the people because they recognize that he's running from the presence of God. They're Phoenicians, and they had water gods, but they didn't know about this God of the heaven and the sea. And there's a fear upon them. Then they said to him, verse 11, what shall we do for you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Um, I love the text. It's funny. I was thinking these mariners who were jettisoning their cargo, they were used to ships tilting in all kinds of ways. They were so afraid. The scripture says they were hurling their cargo. I think they were hurling some other things as well, but I just don't want to go to that. And now Jonah says, hurl me into the sea. The word hurl comes up three times in this text, which is very interesting. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. I want you to see something here. The sailors are acting in noble purposes. They're not going to go against the sanctity of life and throw Jonah into the sea for their own safety. They try to row back to the shore. Just the opposite of how the prophet's living. But for God to put his exclamation point on this story to show that even your good intentions will not outcome the story that he's telling, God turns the heat up and the storm becomes even greater. Because God's going to accomplish his purpose, the story that he's telling. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us the innocent blood. For you, Lord, have done as it has pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So you're all waiting for me to talk about the fish next week. <laughs> gotcha. You're coming back for that one. What's my so what this morning? I have two of them for us. God is the one who's really telling the story. He is the one who is crafting the script. And his story is primarily about rescuing the people that don't know him and he longs to be in relationship with. Everything else is secondary to that story. God's love, his, his said, his loving kindness, his caris, his grace, is so overwhelming, even as we sang in the offertory song today, God weeps for those that aren't in relationship with him. It is his primary concern. As delightful as this was for the Lord this morning, um, I've been exploring this idea of the pleasure of God recently. I, I settled on the issue that God loves me a long time ago. Nothing can do anything to affect that aspect of love. But I'll tell you the thing I've been really thinking about recently is the pleasure of God. He actually takes pleasure in us. So as we were worshiping today, as we were coming here and setting our wills aside... As we came here knowing that there was only going to be a short window of sun between, by noon 
and we were going to worship, even though we could have been out in the sun as we're doing these things, God looks at us and he goes, I, I just like my sons and daughters when they gather. It's pleasurable for him. I feel that when I come into the sanctuary. I hope you'll feel that in the future. God is delighted that we're in his presence. But as much pleasure as that gives God, it is not as emotionally strong as the people he's concerned about on the other side of that fence who do not know him. When you think about the passion of love that you have for your children, especially those of you who have children who are a bit older, the love you have and the pleasure you have for your children just brings you such delight. There's, when they experience good, you just love it. It makes you feel good. It does not equal the emotional tension that you feel when your children are walking away from God's purposes in their life. You know that as parents. So when you think about our God, as He looks in here in delight, He's so excited that we're going to gather around this table as the forgiven and belonging people, but his heart also bleeds for the people out there that don't know him, even some of the ones who are most antagonistic against us. So it leads me to my second, so what? God is calling us to be his expression of love to those people. We are the prophets. We are His Word. He will come in every once in a while and put an exclamation point by releasing the healing or reveal Himself in a supernatural way. But His primary means is to call His people, the Jonas of this world, to not think about their own world, but to cross boundaries with His love. There are people this week who will not experience God's love if you do not express that love to Him or to them. You are the vehicle of it. It's a compelling story to me because God is writing it and all I have to do is find myself in the midst of it. You see, I've been saved from something that's pretty miserable. It is by God's mercy and grace that I am saved into relationship with, but I'm saved unto something which is the invitation to bring others to experience His love too. I will say this about myself. When I am shy about that, when I am weak about that, I am in those moments denying the very love of God because God's generosity and bounty in my life presses me to have that same bounty towards others. And get over all the stuff in me that would cause me to be afraid about how will they reject me or anything else. See, that's the story of Jonah. A prophet who should have known better doesn't know better. And it's a mid-course correction for the people of God at all times that we are His agents in this world to bring His salvation. High schoolers, teens that are graduating, let me say this to you. I'm not going to make you stand up and yell, here am I, send me, like Ingrid had to do. But I ask you to consider this. What is God calling you to? What is God calling you to? 
I ask your forgiveness when we as a society have made it all about the best education and the highest paid job and success as we have defined it. Would you forgive us for putting it out there? I give you a higher calling. Use your life to announce the kingdom of God. Whether you are a banker or a school teacher or a ditch digger, use it to the glory of God. And watch what comes out of it. It's an incredible journey when you are in the line of what God is doing. And you get to see his hand at work. So now what? I've been living with two words since sabbatical. This is how I'm responding to God's calling in my life. Alignment and assignment. The Lord gave them to me on sabbatical. Thank you, Stanwich, for giving me that sabbatical. It enriched my life significantly. Alignment is simply this. Every morning, I start my day in the Word and in prayer, and I say, God, I want to be aligned to the tune of your voice so that when you say, arise, get up, and go, I will know exactly what you're saying. It's aligning your life to the text that God is writing, the story that he has for your life. Now, some of you want to figure out what that is. I've written a book for you. It's just being released today. Jonah and me on mission with God. Not only do I explore this, but I explore ideas of calling and passion. And some of you are in this book. I changed the names to protect the not so innocent. (laughs) But I used your stories to show people in other settings how people of God in Greenwich, Connecticut are using their lives to bring his salvation to this world. If you're not quite sure about what that alignment means, I encourage you to read the book and find what is the script part that God has given you. And then the second thing is assignment. After my ear is tuned, I just wait for what God's assignments are in the course of the day. I'll walk into the room and I'll see somebody across the hall and I'm going, yep, thank you, Lord, that's the one. I'll be in Starbucks line, I'll hear a conversation, and the Lord will go, yep, that's the one. And I'm not talking about going and pigeonholing people, I'm talking about going and loving them, being interested in them, listening to their story. Here's the cool thing about when you live with alignment and assignment, you don't have to go to Africa to be a missionary, you can be the presence of God where God has placed you, all of your stuff becomes holy unto the Lord. I had a story this week about a guy who was with uh, um, three friends and they were golfing and the fourth was put in their foursome and the fourth guy could swear like a sailor. I mean, he was letting it rip every which way. Uh, There's a guy told the story, he said, this guy had more creative swearing than I've ever heard. I wanted to get him published. He was amazing in all the stuff he was coming up. And he said, I was wrestling inside because he's using the name of Jesus in inappropriate ways. And he said, but I don't want to be that crazy Christian that says, you know, he's my Lord. Don't use his name. How's that going to help a guy? And so in the middle of this guy's golfing, he would hit these terrible shots into the woods, into the water, and he would damn this and damn that, and he blamed God for his golf shot. And he got up to hit on about the sixth hole, and my friend said, he looked at him and he said, you need to change your prayer. 
And the guy said, well, what do you mean? He said, you keep damning your shots and your prayers are being answered. He said, well, what do I do? He said, just say, bless the Lord and hit the ball. So the guy said, bless the Lord, and he hit it right down the fairway in the middle. Now, I wish it happened this way all the time, but it doesn't always happen this way. A couple holes later, the guy looked at him. He quit swearing. He started blessing. A couple holes later, he said, you guys are Christians, aren't you? And my friend said, yeah. At the end of it, when you get to the end of golf, there's this polite thing where you go and shake people's hands. You know, at the end, inside, you're calculating, did I win or lose? But you're being nice and you're shaking hands. <laughs> this young man came up to my friend and went right past his hand and hugged him. And he said, this has been one of the best days that I've experienced on the golf course. Can we just spend some time together? Jonah's, God is calling. Let's cross boundaries. Let's go to the places where people hate us the most. And let's love them so they experience the Heavenly Father's love. Amen.